And good evening and welcome to another edition of the Shoreditch Radio podcast here on Shoreditch Radio. I'm Liam Davis. Always a pleasure to have your company on our Wednesday night podcast. Uh, Always good uh, to speak to a variety of different guests on a Wednesday evening. Uh, Two guests tonight. Um, Later on in the programme, I was speaking to Anna Oppenheim. Uh, Anna... um, We'll be speaking to us a little bit about what's going on in the news at the moment. There's been plenty in the news today, obviously, everything with Dominic Cummins and everything that's been going on. Uh, lots to talk about, I think, uh, later on in the podcast. Uh, but my first guest, um, Tom has been a guest on the Liam Davis show before, um, so it's delighted to have him on the Shoreditch Radio podcast uh, tonight. Uh, Tom Sherrington. Tom, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Um, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be interested in Dominic Cummings talking about him. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing all right. I mean, it's quite uh, quite interesting listening to that, Tom, today, hasn't it been, with some of the revelations that, that he's made. Um, some interesting stuff there, isn't there? Oh, yeah, I mean, of course, he's, he's kind of um, blown his credibility a bit last year with his, <laughs> his, his Barnum Castle um, shenanigans. But yeah. But yeah, if, if, if half of what he's saying is right, um, then there's been some dodgy business going on, let's face it. Yeah, no, there's definitely been some real dodgy business um, going on. Um, Tom, I think last time we spoke, which was on, as I was saying at the top of the show there, on, on my programme uh, last year, um, I think it was around about, might have been around about May, June time, around this this um, time last year. Um Tell us about, I mean, if I recall, last time you were on the, my programme, um, we spoke a little bit about your first book, which, well, not so much first book, but your Teaching Walkthroughs 1 uh, book, if you like, um, and yeah. now, within the space, within that year, um, you've now written, obviously, Teaching Walkthroughs 2, so tell us a little bit about the thought process that went into sort of putting another book out there. Well, we planned to do the, the three books right from the beginning. So when we when we wrote the first walkthroughs, we we, we thought we would capture the key strategies that all teachers might find useful. But then we we, we realised there was more than we could really fit into one book. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll park some of those ideas for the second one, and then we'll sort of do three, and that be it. So this is sort of like in the second instalment, and then that next year there'll be a third one, and then and that be it. So we're sort of halfway through. Or two thirds of the way through the whole project. And tell us a little bit about then this uh, the, the second book, um, teaching walkthroughs too. Um, what sort of, if you like, different from the first one in terms of content, in terms of ideas from from the first one? Um, well, mainly, uh, I suppose um, we, we've kept the same sort of theme, so we've got um, more ideas to do with some summaries, summaries of key bits of research, um, we've got um, stuff to do with behaviour and curriculum and classroom factors like questioning, but but we've included some more guest authors, so we have this time uh, 10 guest authors who've written bits for us, so um, rather than us writing about other people's work, we've got them to do it for us, so that's been great. So we, we've got people like Alex Quigley has written some stuff about reading, and Martin Robinson has written some walkthroughs about his book The Trivium and and various other people have contributed um, uh, Benny Cara has, has written a, a, a walkthrough on um, how, how to in, include uh, diversity 
issues in the curriculum and so on. So it, it's been, that, that's a, a change. We've got some more people contributing to the whole project. I mean, that sounds like some, and, and I mean, sort of how did that come about, Tom, in terms of those guest authors? Was it through sort of your contacts um, in education or, or, I mean, I know you're a sort of an avid Twitter user as well, so I guess you keep across a lot of the Twitter stuff around education on, on there. How did it come about that those authors got involved? Uh, we started off, um, I think we started off with Alex quickly because we thought reading is such an important issue and um, I was just thinking, well, can, I, can I write about reading? I thought, well, I could, but maybe Alex would, would do it much better than me and he, that, that seems to be the case. So we invited him and then talking to Benny Carr about diversity. She did a, 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 a masterclass event with me and some of the ideas she had I thought was such a clear way to generate we different stories into the curriculum. So I thought, well, she, again, rather than me trying to capture her thoughts, get her to do it herself. And then we thought, well, there are a number of other things, like um, the guy, Ollie Lovell, writing about the cognitive load theory. He did a book about our own action series last year. And he's got this neat idea called the ABCDE of cognitive load theory. So five steps, all of our things are in five steps. So, so he, he, he did that. So it just sort of each, each sort of bit became a kind of, and the idea of having someone write it. Uh, and, then we, and then we realized that, you know, we had a set of people and it, it just sort of came together one by one in a way. It wasn't really, we didn't set out to say, let's get lots of guest authors. Mm. Each specific thing just, as it, as it emerged organically, we realized we collected quite a few people for three minutes. And uh, in terms of the third book then, because um, I think you mentioned you're two thirds of the way through. In terms of the third book, then, um, I, I mean, it sort of sounds like maybe 2022 for the next one, teaching walkthroughs three. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, I think um, this, at this time next year we'll be talking about that. Yeah, so the, the next one, we, we, we're starting to scope the ideas out. We're going to include a lot more about assessment, which is haven't, we haven't featured too strongly so far, but we're also. Um, going to be um, crowdsourcing, we're going to be asking people who have read the first two books, you know, what else do you think we ought to include and what's missing from your point of view, and, and we're going to do a bit of a survey in the next couple of months, and then we'll, we'll use that input to also finalise the last the list for the last book, so it sort of caps it off nicely. Mm. And, what's a, and, and so far from, I mean, I remember talking to you about the first book, and, and I've seen some stuff on Twitter as well. Um, some really like you know positive reviews and people are adapting them into their practice what's been some of the feedback that you've got so far from 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 people that have, have read the book well we've been really pleased I mean the, 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 in terms of like sales and stuff it's doing well but it, it's it, yeah pe- people who are using them in their schools so one of the things that we developed um, since last year as well as the books that we've developed this whole set of resources on a website and you can subscribe as a school and get a hold of videos and powerpoints and stuff to use in training sessions and so we've had that's that's gone you know really well we've got maybe well we've got over a thousand different schools that are using those resources so they're, they're fine we get really good feedback from that and different different schools are using it differently so some schools you'll find you know they've bought everybody a copy of the book and then they're using them in the discussion sometimes they they may be using the slides and they're using in their CPD um, delivery 
Um, other times it's they're, they're, they're encouraging individual teachers to access the resources independently, like on, the phone, on their phones or on their laptops at home. And so there's lots of different ways people are engaging. And they're actually finding that the different, some specific ideas resonate with them. So it, it, it depends. I mean, yesterday I was talking to a whole group of primary head teachers in Harrogate, um, in, in London, where, where they were each telling me kind of what they were doing. And they were all different. I mean, some have started with some questioning techniques, some, what, what some of them were really interested in the behavior management ideas, others were starting with modeling and scapping and modeling writing. Or, and so they, it, it's been interesting to me is how different schools have picked different walkthroughs to start with as their kind of key focus. Um, yeah, so that, that's been good. I mean, so I'm glad that we covered a, a range of things that have allowed lots of different schools to feel there was something in there that they would have approached that. And just thinking there, Tom, I suppose that's a good point to just raise. If schools are interested, whether it be primary or secondary, are, are interested in sort of taking up, going into this and, 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 and you know, using the books and using the, um, you know, various tools that you've got available, how would they, how would they go about doing that? We've got a website which is uh, basically walkthroughs.co.uk <laughs> and then it explains everything so walkthroughs spelled you know, T-H-R-U-S um, walkthroughs.co.uk and then there's a, there's a kind of link where you can see the materials and, and costs and stuff and yeah so that, that's been a really exciting development like, you know, other, other books that I've done before where you just write the book and you know it's nice when people read it because this is really a kind of it's one of the whole sort of key professional development pack so it's it's more um, about how you use it and you wouldn't even really expect people to pick up the book and read through it it's just you, you, you deliberately flick into it and, and, and focus on one page or two or, and that's what's been you know we, we found that all sorts of teachers are um, making stuff like literally nearly every single day somebody sends me we've made this we've chopped up your hope you don't mind we've chopped up <laughs> stuff We've made this resource, and we, we, we've, we've made this reflection sheet, or we've made this workbook, and it's great. So I love the fact that teachers in different schools are kind of, you know, they love to kind of innovate and, and test things out. So we've had some really nice, uh, even to the point where the website, when people subscribe to our stuff and they, they click onto the resources, the website that they, they access it through is made by a school that was one of our early subscribers. They, they made it for themselves and they showed it to us and they go, oh my God, your website's better now. <laughs> can, can, can everybody have that? And, and so if that's that thing, it's great. You know, people out there using your own material and, and that, that's been good. In fact, we even, we've even had it translated into um, Dutch. So at least the, the first book has been translated into Dutch, which is called Durelupis, which is, <laughs> which is, which is their equivalent. I think it means sort of step by step. <laughs> and the company that did that has made this like super pro website with, and it's like, I'm like, we're going, oh my goodness, there's so much better than that. But it's quite exciting to see you know, the basic teaching ideas being shared in this way um, with the visual images and stuff, and people seem to respond well to that. Absolutely. Um, how do you reflect on then in the gap sort of maybe between writing and publishing the two books because it's sort of right in the middle of the the pandemic of course um how do you reflect as somebody who's obviously a very experienced educationalist author 
how do you reflect on on the past year um, in education? Because I remember when I spoke to you again, it was probably about this time last year, and we were sort of yeah. guessing about when schools would return and how it would look. Um, obviously, a year on, what's your thoughts and reflections on on if you like the, the past year in education? Well, it's been, it's been incredible, isn't it? I, mean, I think it's kind of. Um force people to, to, to focus on the things that matter, so um, people are still being, and what, what's impressed me is that people haven't sort of down tools on things like professional development, they haven't said they're not doing it, they've just been saying how can we still do it, so lots of online stuff have developed, lots of webinars and mm. videos stuff, so I, I think there's been a lot of innovation around that which has been quite good, and almost more than ever because people have been forced to communicate uh, out, you know, going, people going through online events and things and, and, and to some extent that's been quite a level because events which I did a year ago or so ago were planning were, were to be like come down to London on a train and come to a venue and get catering sorts of that all that stuff and now you don't no one expects that so you just the people can come to your event from Scotland or Cornwall or whatever and, and be on the same and I think that's been quite good but I think, I think from schools that I'm talking working with I mean obviously Remote learning, like that whole learning curve, it shows you how it kind of resilient and innovative teachers can be. They, they they switch totally from one type of teaching to all online. But and, and then and then the most recent thing with doing the, the grading for the GCSEs and A levels, it's just phenomenal, really. How I know it's not you know the people aren't jumping for joy about it, obviously, but they they're getting on with it and they're doing it and they're, they're getting through it. I think that's amazing. I, I find that quite inspiring, really, that the schools and teachers and leaders have been so adapt, adaptable to all of those things. And still, and there's, there's this enthusiasm. They're like, hey, I still have events like I, I did a training session today and mm. yesterday, nearly every day I, I do them. And the people I'm talking to are not beaten into the ground or anything remotely there. They're looking forward to next year and they want to get going and they've got this energy and this real desire to kind of crack on. And I just think that's great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a case of, you know, being a... I mean, I think you kind of almost said, I mean, we sort of had to look at things very, very differently and from many different perspectives, haven't we? We've had to look at it from teachers' perspective, from parents' perspective, from schools' perspective, um, from a technological perspective. There's so many different... I suppose, this, in some way, in the face of adversity, it has brought in some some really good innovations that perhaps we wouldn't have been brave enough to do before. And I guess it's been a case of adapting in the face of adversity. Definitely, yeah. And I, I, I feel like it's sort of... I mean, I've been, I was in a, in a school last week where people were getting back into the group, and there were, you know, there, there's definitely... They were saying, you know, some of the children were might maybe slightly less confident with writing, say, than the equivalent year group the year before at the same stage. So there has been some kind of effect, um, but not to the point where they then they can recover it. It's just sort of going to take a lot longer for the, a bit longer for those children to sort of get up to speed. But it's not like it, I don't see it as like some permanent loss they suffered. But the teachers were kind of getting back into the group, and definitely they never kind of. You know, backing the habits mm. and the discipline and the expectations. So I think there is I think there is still a process this term, this summer term of schools kind of gearing back up um, to kind of perhaps kind of the, the, the schools which are when they're at full pelt are quite <laughs> it's like how quickly move. 
and um, with, with children being at home and doing all that, it's, it has to change the pace of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to mention that, actually, because I'm thinking about, I mean, you're somebody, obviously, who's very, very big on, on pedagogy and, 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 you know, obviously the books that you've written very much are around approaches in the classroom and, and how we teach and, you know, how we use assessment and how we, you know, use teaching, all the teaching skills in the book. Is, when you've been going into schools, is, is that something that you've noticed that, obviously, picking pedagogy back up, from obviously it's very difficult you know all the sort of covid restrictions and everything in the classroom yeah. are you starting to see that now then as we move towards i suppose the next academic year really um that 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 is starting to sort of pick up again and 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 people are you know putting their pedagogy back into place if you like yeah i, I feel like there's definitely a kind of getting used to you know, the interactions it's, it's um that the dynamics of the classroom are, are very, you know, interesting. You know, seeing 25, 30 children sitting in front of you and trying to engage them all and get them all to talk. There's, there's a whole range of things which teachers have to be up for, and there's a kind of energy that you need to, to really be, be as dynamic as you'd like to be. And I, and I think, to some extent, some teachers are sort of thinking, oh my God, I've forgotten how, how, how busy it is. And just, but, you know, they're doing it, though. They are doing it. And I feel like a lot of schools are saying, they're using this term as a bit of a kind of building back so that there's a lot of people saying that from in September we'll be ready for this and that. So using the term as a bit of a buffer zone for some curriculum review and getting their professional development plans all in gear. Especially with second secondary school which doing these grades, it, it's a massive thing and it's hard to overstate it. I mean, some teachers become like mini examples and then a ton of, ton of assessment. <coughs> yeah. It's very heavy. <laughs> I can, I can, I can, I can, I can speak from experience on that one. GCSE and A-level and I know you're somebody who's obviously you know has mentioned and talked about this sort of international baccalaureate sort of style um, system and I know I've said um, well actually I think you know we need to keep 11 to 16 schools with well in terms of GCSEs need to stay because what do you focus an 11 to 16 year old school pupil on when actually they're, they're big exams if there was no exams at 16 what do you focus them on for five years um, when they actually go and take the big the big ones if you like in another institution and I, I just wonder Tom actually um, given as you've just mentioned there the amount of workload that's on teachers shoulders this summer particularly marking for the tags or whatever sort of terminology is used for them I just actually wonder there might actually be a groundswell of support next year that please, please, please bring back GCSE exam, proper GCSE exams next year that are marked by the exam boards because we can't, we can't do this every year. <laughs> yes, I think it's, um, it's, 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 it
I, I, I agree to, you know, within the context of running GCSEs as they are, I, I don't think, I, I, I'm not someone who sympathises with the idea that it, it's proven that we don't need it and teachers can do assessment. I think that's what's proven is that if you're going to have kind of high, high validity assessed grades, teachers having to do all this moderation and proof, proving stuff, it's an absolute car crash of workload. So having examples to do that, if you're going to have the same type of thing, it's way better. Um, and yeah, I mean, some normal GCSEs, but I do think there's also a thing like, do you need so many? Um, mm. I mean, uh, do you need three you know, two-hour papers in history to assess uh, GCSE? I yeah. don't know. So there's, there's all that sort of out debate. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. We we were debating this on on the program last night, and that was one thing that came up actually about you know does it really need three exam papers for certain subjects when actually maybe one, maybe definitely maximum two would cover it. Is there a need to have over a space? I think it's about three and a half weeks. Some students can sit up to like thirty exams across three and a half weeks, which would be hard enough for an adult to do, let alone a 16-year-old. So it is tough going. I think it is tough going, and I think that's one of the debates. But sometimes it's not about... I get frustrated with the debates which about, you know, scrap GCSEs. I mean, no, don't say that. What you really mean is put GCSEs into more, in more of a perspective in a wider assessment regime. And I, I think that, I, that, that's what I... That, yes, I agree with that. But scrapping GCSEs, no, that's that's too black and white. But then, you know, interesting. Like I was at a primary school recently where they were saying their year sixes had this feeling because they obviously have grown up through understanding the facts and something you do at the end. And now they don't have that, those this year. They they were saying they found it hard to motivate them. And um, with you know, a few weeks to go, they were finding compared with other years that sense of you know facts. So people people often want to make try to say that. Year sixes don't really care about the the, the facts. They're not for them. They're to assess school. But actually, this school saying we thought that too. But actually, it turns out they do care about the facts. And <laughs> now they don't have now they don't have something to work towards. They're sort of thinking, well, what's the point in all of this? And we wait till we get to secondary school because that's the next thing that really matters. And they were saying that was a bit of surprising a, a surprising thing that they discovered about their own students that they didn't really expect. But uh, yeah, so I think these things. I think that's something to aim at. Definitely a wider debate, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It depends on what it is, though. I mean, we, we, we can talk about, I mean, I'm just, as part of the National Baccalaureate uh, Trust that I'm part of, we've just launched a, a consultation which is out at the moment where we're saying that here, here's some ideas about a baccalaureate, and, and the idea of the 11 to 16 schools would be that you would aim for, like, a sort of part one, you would do something, but you're, you're still only contributing to the full baccalaureate at 18. Mm, mm. Uh, but I've been, I can, I, I can, it's hard to explain that without some sort of visuals to show you. <laughs> yeah. But I, I feel like it's up for discussion. I'm yeah, no, I mean, I know it's something that you and I, like I said, I know it's something that you and I have debated on Twitter in wider discussions around this. And I agree with you on many respects. I think, yes... I think there does need to be reform, but I do think, you know, when I think about school structures, I think my point is always sort of centred around school structure that, you know, an 11 to 16 school that doesn't have a sixth form, and there are lots of them, um, it's what, at the end of, at 16, what you aim them for, when, if, there's all, if all the exams come down to when they're 18, that's going to cause, obviously, a few issues for those institutions, but like I said, I agree, I think there could be sort of a part one, part two, part one done at 16 maybe, 
part two done at 18 with maybe more waiting carried on part two possibly yeah no I I, 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 I that's exactly how I see it and, but, and then the, the, do you have that being a, a universal thing and I think the biggest thing we have at the moment is that if you if you end up with sort of a handful of grade twos and two and three GCSEs what have you what have you got you, you, you're sort of defined as having failed even, even in the government language you know a three is a fail and that is a terrible system really when, when you know a good proportion of students kind of leave school with not having passed things and it doesn't give them a, it doesn't give a fair reflection of what they can do to mm. accept deficits and I, I think that's a, a structural flaw which is, is quite is very significant and we could address easily plus also the other thing like there's there's, there's scope for doing like some individual projects and some community service and all those sorts of things can easily be wrapped up into a wider program and and my ideal vision vision for that that's exactly what you do you you do lots of exams and they'd be important but they'd be part of a wider thing mm. so the whole thing would a much more rounded view of what a student can do absolutely and there's some really awesome websites like in America they've, there's some places they've developed this sort of digital um, transcript where you, you, you just you know with a QR code you just sort of zap the QR code and it opens up the student's portfolio and it shows you their achievements, what they've done, all sorts of different aspects of school and there's even some samples of their work. It's like if you could do, you could have that for literally every student, it would be great. You wouldn't and that would be a much better way to hold other stuff. So I can even imagine in a few years time, well say twenty years time, every single student in England would leave school with their digital transcript and that would just be what everyone understood to be how you record an education. I think that would be great. Well, it's certainly worth thinking about. Certainly, as you say, a very interesting debate and a very wider debate still to to consider and think about. Maybe in a year's time, Tom, we'll talk about it again. In our annual... Oh, lockdown. Oh, God. Any more lockdown? I think people are going to go crazy quite understandably there's another one so <laughs> Tom listen it's always a pleasure to talk to you thanks very much indeed for coming on the programme good luck with um, obviously finishing off teaching walkthrough three and I'm sure um, when that is finished and published we can certainly have another chat on the programme again but as ever it's lovely to talk to you yeah, cheers, cheers Tom thanks very much indeed and that was Tom Sherrington um, always a pleasure to talk to Tom on the Shoreditch Radio podcast and that leads me very nicely on the Shoreditch Radio podcast into my second guest of the evening. Um, we were talking off air. Um, there's so much in the news at the moment. Obviously, there's a huge... I mean, particularly today of all days, there was the, a lot of the Dominic Cummings stuff. I mean, we were certainly going to talk a lot... Of, we're going to talk about COVID. But I think some of the revelations, obviously, today that have come out in regards to Dominic Cummings and some of the stuff particularly around that I think is really important to talk about so we'll do that um, and in the studio joining me um, on the podcast tonight um, is Labour activist Anna Oppenheim. Anna welcome to the show. Hello, hello lovely to meet you. No, And likewise nice to have you on the programme. Um, so what have you made today of, um, I mean I should say I guess in the interest of balance, uh, Labour activist um, We'll talk about maybe Labour's response to to, to, to to COVID and everything maybe a bit later on, but what have you made of some of the revelations today that have come out from 
Dominic Cummins about the way the government has handled the pandemic. Obviously, it's a very dramatic day. Certainly has. Um, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of the stuff that uh, we found out today is not really news. Uh, for those who have been following closely how the government has handled and mishandled the pandemic, it is not news. The strategy um, has been completely wrong from the very start. So the government has been very hesitant to introduce lockdowns, even when there was more and more evidence that they're necessary, that uh, Boris Johnson was prioritising um, protecting the economy over protecting human lives, and in the end, failing to protect either, really. Um, you know, what, what Dominic Cummings did mention is, for example, the role of Rishi Sunak in this, which I think was uh, curious, I think a very strategic decision not to mention him. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting a confession like that. I'm glad that Cummings is accepting his own responsibility and his own role. Uh, but it's a shame that it's happening over a year too late, when tens of thousands of people have died unnecessarily. No, absolutely, and I think that's that's um, that's the the key matter, isn't it? Is that we are talking about people's lives, isn't it? And that's the the key thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for journalism, it might be an enjoyable watch today, but for thousands of families across lost, the country, lost ones, yeah. it is absolutely tragic knowing that these deaths were absolutely avoidable. No, you're absolutely right. Um, just, I mean, some of the stuff that's come out. I mean, it's probably worth us talking about it a bit. Um, I mean, the striking statement from Cummings is tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. I mean, that's um, a key thing, I think, to say. He says that Matt Hancock should have been fired. He said about at least 15 to 20 things that were, were wrong or were lies, I'm presuming. Um, lions led by donkeys. Um, the Prime Minister referred to COVID originally as just a scare story. Um, there was the delay in the first lockdown. Um, 14th of March, um, Boris had been t- said that models showing the peak events was weeks and weeks away. And obviously that wasn't true. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. There's that, the care home regrets. There was stuff around care homes that they didn't do. There was no proper borders policy. The government collapsed when Johnson got COVID. Um, Prime Minister ignored the second lockdown advice. Um, uh, the tiering system was full of holes. I think we probably pretty know it there. Yeah. So there's some really, uh, there's, yeah. some, there's some really yeah. damning stuff, isn't there? Once again, I feel like we knew this. There are a lot of people in the opposition benches saying that. There are a lot of journalists saying that. <laughs> you know, people like Owen Jones getting lots of abuse from saying these kinds of things from the start. And over and over, in, in real time, we watch the government fail, fail to act and let people die. And this just confirms that uh, uh, you know, Boris Johnson and people around him were quite relaxed about many people dying if it means there is no lockdowns. And we end up having even longer lockdowns with worse consequences for everyone. Hmm. I mean, how do you think things are at the moment? Because obviously we have opened up again. Um, we are obviously still in some sort of partial lockdown much less than what we were um how do you think things are going in terms of i mean walking around london it does seem a lot more busier now than it was i mean i know we are well allegedly in summertime (laughs) 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 it doesn't feel like it but i mean just thinking it is it's a it's a it's a it's a tricky one isn't it because it's balancing and perhaps it's where they have gone completely wrong is that they've never found a balance between restrictions and life i guess yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, 
I think um, you know, reopening on at every stage has been very business driven. Where a lot of people have forgotten that uh, until you know until the re- most recent reopening, uh, seeing your partner or seeing your close family members indoors yeah. had not been allowed for over six months. Yeah, uh, with obviously huge consequences for your mental health. Uh, I think at, at this point, I would describe myself as cautiously optimistic. I mean, the vaccines are the real game changer here, mm-hmm. um, and full credit to the NHS. Um, I think the government needs to monitor very closely what's happening. There is a lot of things we don't know about the Indian variant yet, mm-hmm. for example, although all evidence seems to show that the vaccines do work on it, which is extremely good news. But we are certainly a race against time here. We're a race against the virus. And also, of course, there's a lot of people that haven't took the vaccine for whatever reason. Um, there are people with health conditions who haven't, pregnant women, young people. I mean, I think at the moment yeah. we are up to, I think, the thir- above 30 age group but under 30s have not had it they're the groups that are likely to you know not necessarily obey social distancing for whatever reason and then of course we've got young people we've got children we've got teenagers schools i mean i know we are not a million miles from the summer holiday but i'm thinking about september now when schools return in september and we then move into the autumn when the weather does change Mm. um and we know that flus and infections and colds and are everything are far more you know, prevalent during those months. Now, is the challenge for the government that we've, you know, we've got to get all of these... I mean, it, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Because if we say, right, let's open up everything on June 21st, but there's a danger with that, isn't there? Because that could lead to a real spike in infections and then, you know, come the autumn, we're going to be really struggling. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think at the moment... Uh uh, numbers of deaths are very low, uh, numbers of people in the hospital keep falling, mm. and if that continues to be the case, I think we can continue to cautiously reopen. At the same time, what does concern me is that there are a lot of people in the Conservative Party who want to reopen everything on the 31st of June, mm. regardless of consequences. Mm. And that has to be absolutely stopped. You know, the government promised to follow data and not dates. And I think that's a good promise that we should absolutely hold them to account to. If, uh, you know, if, if cases remain stable or keep, keep falling, uh, if you don't see more people dying, more people in hospital, we can keep reopening. But my guess is that probably the June date um, will at least not be a full reopening. I can imagine there's still being restrictions on mass events. I can still imagine there being risk assessments, mm-hmm. uh, social distancing in some forms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't see a, a system whereby we say, do you know what, get rid of the mask. You can go up as close to anybody as you want to. I think it's very unlikely, wouldn't you, that that's going to happen. Yeah, it does give me hope that so far the trials of uh, most public events have gone down, have gone really well. So it does me, give me hope. But at the same time, yeah, we have the Indian variant. We have possibly new variants. Uh, so we have to be extremely careful not to repeat the mistakes that have happened over the past year and a few months over and over again, as I said. Do you expect that June 21st date to be pushed back? Do you think it will? Do you think it's, it might be pushed back to July sometime just so that they can analyse and, 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 and I suppose give more time for more people to be vaccinated who yeah. want the vaccine? And, and, and we do need to get maybe more younger people particularly people in their 20s and in their teens vaccinated before we actually say, do you know what, we can just get rid of all restrictions. Do you think, do you expect that it might be pushed back to maybe July sometime? Yeah, seems likely. I think my my guess would be there will be 
more reopening, but at the same time, um, I don't imagine all restrictions being gone overnight. At a point where still a lot of young people, as a lot of people, you know, in their twenties and younger, have not even had the vaccine offered to them. Mm. Um, so my expectation will be that you know, if it means we have to keep clubs and other venues closed for for a few more weeks yes. to protect people's life, protect people's health, I think that's absolutely what we need to do. Yeah. No. Absolutely. In terms of travel. Um, I mean, people are obviously starting to think about summer holidays, quite understandably. <laughs> it's been a hellish year. But, I mean, they are fraught with risk. Mm. Um, we've obviously got the lists, red, amber, green. Um, I mean, it's again, it's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because, again, we've got a balancing act here between, you know, the desire to go abroad, but it's fraught with risk. The EU is obviously significantly behind in terms of the vaccination programme. Yeah. It is fraught with risk. I mean, I saw this week that Spain had removed the UK from its quarantine mm-hmm. list, but the UK have not removed Spain. So if you're travelling to Spain, you have to quarantine when you come back for 10 days. Um, I mean, is it something that we should be really doing this year or is it something that actually we've just got to make a bit of a sacrifice and say, you know what, we need some more time to just take stock, absorb, get the vaccine, get up to speed and then do it? Or actually, people should just go on holiday and you only live once sort of thing. Um, my personal advice would be to err on the side of caution. Yeah. I think we have to distinguish between people who may have families abroad and like very important reasons, you know, if you haven't seen your parents or your partner or your children for months. Mm. I don't think we should be stopping people to go in places that seem safe. At the same time, you know, I am worried that, for example, Portugal is the only um, one of major European tourist destinations. And then everybody just floods to Portugal. (laughs) It's not a country that's uh, reached a very high vaccination rate yet. No, Um, and that's a key point as well. Exactly, exactly, right. Um, You know, I think there's a difference with people people going to Gibraltar or Israel, the vaccination rate is much higher. In a place like Portugal that currently seems safe, but in a few weeks or a few months, when everyone floods there, that might not be the case. Mm. So my recommendation for people who don't have a very obvious reason to go abroad would be to look at nice places in the UK and mm. uh, hope for a nicer UK summer than we see in currently. Walton on the Nays or Clacton on Sea, South End maybe, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> who knows? Um, they're all nice places. Whether you'd want to go on holiday there these days, I don't know, but nice places, um, having been to all of them. Um, do we think that the green... So do you, I, I suppose my next question is, do you think the green list will expand soon? I mean, I, I, my gut instinct is, is that Spain will move to the green list soon. I've got a feeling that maybe next month it will. Do you, yeah. think, do you, think, do you think there might be a few more countries that might move to the green list? Yeah, yeah, I think almost definitely. Mm. Um, my gut instinct is that yeah. Spain will, yeah. Yeah, especially as vaccination rates are being higher and higher in all places in Europe. Europe I think... Uh, you know, towards maybe the middle of the summer, there'll be more countries. Mm. Um, Spain, I'd say maybe France, mm. seems to be doing quite well. Mm. Uh, once again, you know, I'll, I'll be wary to see a lot of people flood at the same time. Um, and uh, maybe it's not something I'd necessarily advise. Uh, but yeah, I, I expect the green list to keep growing over the summer. Yeah, same. Agreed. Um, I suppose a final topic then in the news. Um, what did you think about the incident in Belarus? I actually know, before I move to that, I should ask you, uh, talking about Labour, as you said, yeah. Labour activist, how do you think Labour's response has been to 
the pandemic and, and I suppose the handling of the pandemic because we saw, didn't we, in the May elections at the beginning of the month that mm. outside of London um, or outside of cities that Labour did very poorly in the council elections. They obviously lost the Hartlepool parliamentary seat as well. Yeah. Um, Keir Starmer has come in for a lot of criticism about the direction the Labour Party is in at the moment. Now, somebody who's an activist at Labour, with Labour, yeah. do you worry about the direction the party is going in? I mean, obviously the approach to more towards the left was tried under Jeremy Corbyn. Ultimately, it didn't work. We saw, again, a re-elected Conservative government in the last five, six years. Mm. Um, Keir Starmer seems to be maybe more centre but we're not quite sure where his policies are and whatever. Um, he's obviously coming for a lot of criticism in their response to the government handling the pandemic. It, is it really Dominic Cummings who should be shaming the government for for their handling? Shouldn't it have been so yeah, Keir Starmer? Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> I, can, I can understand that at the very beginning of the pandemic, the leadership wanted to look collaborative at a time where you know the country was... Uh, wanted to feel safe, right? Yeah. So in a lot of countries, so the government's um, approval ratings being higher because people wanted to feel safe. I kind of understand that. Mm. But it very quickly became very clear that the government is completely failing. Mm. And there, I think, you know, the Labour Party left it to, yeah, people like Cummings or, you know, people like Andy Burnham, once again, not saying that they were leadership, just a kind of local leader, uh, or Marcus Rashford, or <laughs> yeah. all kinds of public figures, uh, coming out with a much stronger message than, uh, unfortunately, here Sarmer did. Um, the other thing that Labour, I think, has failed to do is talk about a vision of society after the pandemic, mm -hmm. when it ends. Um, you know, we've learned many things about the nature of work, we've learned um, about the need for proper... Um, sick pay for, for protections of people to be able to stay home when they're feeling ill um, and uh, yeah that message has not really come through mm. um, so um, you know I'm not surprised that uh, just just hearing one perspective and then seeing the government deal with vaccines quite well uh, people are, don't really see a reason to, to vote Labour and it also worries me that um, government's mishandling of the pandemic might be very quickly forgotten mm. um, unless we have uh, more people and especially Labour leadership willing to remind so us. So what do you think has got to change? The, what do you think has got to change? I think a stronger message, you know, key, key messages. I'd say, I'd say Labour should have, you know, maybe five key messages covering what went wrong in the pandemic, um, why the government failed, um, and what needs to happen next, how society needs to change. And I want to hear them over and over again, right? Mm. Like, the media will not do it for us. We have to use every opportunity we have, every time we're on TV, every time we can speak to the public, to repeat our key messages about how the government has failed, that it's not the public that is to blame and uh, people taking too many walks in the park, <laughs> <laughs> but it is government yeah. policy. That yeah. means that too many people tragically lost their lives and families have lost their loved ones. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, final story then that to, to talk about. Um, what do you make of the incident in Belarus where a plane going over Belarusian airspace was stopped, apparently a fake um, bomb scare to take off a, an opposition, well, a journalist who has, uh, has been, you know, said that he writes for the opposition party, he's pro the opposition party. Um, 
I mean, this is a worrying development, isn't it? That, that I mean, I think Britain has said that they have told all airlines not to fly over Belarus. Yeah. But how long is it before other countries follow? Some maybe more hostile countries follow Belarus's lead and do similar things. It's it's a concerning development, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, not, it's an absolutely horrific story. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what Iran Prasad must have felt when the when the plane stopped. Mm. How his loved ones must be feeling now, seeing that it's very likely he's being tortured. We don't know what his health condition is. Mm. It's a horrific story, um, and. Um, you know, I was glad to see the EU react very, very decisively, imposing sanctions straight away. Um, economic sanctions will not bring down a dictatorship, but uh, it does draw a line, showing that that kind of behaviour is unacceptable. And I want the, the US, the UK, also come out very strongly mm. um, and put human rights first. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say, or it's, you know, it's very true that people say that Lukashenko is the last dictator of Europe, or well, I hope he is the last one, but he has shown again that it's a very brutal dictatorship, that cannot be underestimated. It's a worrying development, isn't it, in, 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 in many respects, um, and let's hope it's, as you say, it's, it's the last of, of, of that, um, because it is a, it is a worrying um, development. Um, Anna, it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks very much indeed for coming on the programme. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been really great speaking to you. And, uh, um, yeah, lots of those stories still, a lot of those stories still to run. Um, that's it for the Shoreditch Radio podcast on this Wednesday evening. Thank you very much to my guest, to Anna, of course, and to Tom Sherrington. I am back on the Liam Davis Show next Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. Um, lots of uh, programmes coming up next week. Um, I'm back Tuesday night at 8, but you've also got two special editions of the Shoreditch Radio podcast on Thursday and Friday next week. So lots to look forward to. Take care, and I will be back next week on Tuesday night, 8 o'clock.